I'm pleased to introduce tonight's speaker, Robert Kaplan. Robert D. Kaplan is a senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security in Washington, D.C., and a national correspondent for The Atlantic. He was recently the Distinguished Visiting Fellow in National Security at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis. He is a member of the Pentagon's Defense Policy Board. His previous 12 books include Balkan Ghosts, fantastic book, uh, Eastward to Tartary, and Warrior Politics, and his most recent book is Monsoon, the Indian Ocean region, and the future of American power. Please give a very warm welcome to Mr. Robert Kaplan. Thank you. Thank you very much, Greg, and thank you all for coming out tonight. What I'm going to talk about is getting away from the Mercator projection that we all grew up with um, and, and to look at the world differently. I'm going to get into this discussion sideways, in a way. The sum total effect of the Iraq and Afghan wars, no matter how you stand on those wars, has been to fast forward the arrival of the, of the Asian century. And by the, and by the arrival of the Asian century, I don't mean it in only economic terms, which is something we all know about. After all, the Pacific Rim Tigers have been the stuff of magazine cover stories since the early 1980s. I mean it in military terms as well. So while the U.S. has been bogged down in Mesopotamia, in Afghanistan, Asian militaries have been growing apace. European military budgets are declining, but it's not just China. It's India, it's Japan, it's South Korea, it's Southeast Asia. Let me take you back to the early Cold War days. At the beginning of the Cold War, Asia had what I like to call oxen-cow armies. Um, in other words, massive, very under-equipped, poorly trained land armies that were good for fixing roads, bringing in the crop, and were established for political reasons to kind of foster national consciousness. And these land armies, you know, the Chinese People's Liberation Army, the Indian military, were focused inward at the country. But as the Cold War went on and military technology developed and prosperity Capitalist prosperity came to India, came to China, came to, the, came to South Korea, came to Southeast Asia. You had the fruits of this prosperity, and actually the fruits of liberal capitalist prosperity are often things like ballistic missiles, fighter jets, war technologies as well as civilian technologies. So you had Asian militaries develop real honest-to-goodness post-industrial civilian military complexes uh, powered by warships, ballistic missiles, cyber capacity, cell phones, satellites in space. Um, take Japan, which is supposedly a quasi-pacifistic country with a defense budget that is only 1.5% of the GDP. Japan has 123 warships. That's four times as many warships as the British Royal Navy. And that was before the British, the British military announced its defense cuts about a week ago. South Korea, the same thing. Southeast Asia, the, the defense budgets of Southeast Asian countries countries went up by about 30% over the last decade. And then, of course, there is China, which is going to have more submarines at sea in about 10 or 15 years than the United States has. Uh, China is developing a world-class navy, and what will herald the multipolar military world to go along with the multipolar economic world that we already live in will be the arrival of a Chinese blue water navy uh, you know, later in the 21st century and the ability of China to kind of overtake Taiwan without actually having to ever fight for it. Just envelop it and that will allow China 
to focus outward to the first island chain in the Pacific around the Indian Ocean. So you see the development I'm talking about. Now, the U.S. military has been ahead of the curve here. In the October 2007 maritime strategy document that the Navy uh, published, um, the Navy said it expects to continue to be a two-ocean Navy. But instead of the Atlantic and the Pacific, it will be the Indian Ocean and the Pacific. The Marines followed suit in June 2008 when they came out with their vision, vision statement for the years 2025. And it said that the Marines too, the center of U.S. Marine activity will shift to the Indian Ocean and the Western Pacific. So what is all this about the Indian Ocean? Look at the Mercator projection, how we all, what we all grew up with. It's a map that has North America and South America in dead center, with the Pacific Ocean and largely the Indian Ocean cut off at the middle at the edges. We're an Atlantic country, we're a Pacific country. So that, uh, World War I and World War II were, light, you know, were heavily Atlantic, Pacific oriented. So was the Korean War. So was the Vietnam War. So um, as Americans, we haven't focused on the Indian Ocean. But the Indian Ocean encompasses from um, the Sahara Desert to the Indonesian archipelago, the entire arc of Islam. Uh, and it's not just Islam as a desert religion, supposedly prone to the extremities of thoughts that, de that deserts give rise, but it is Islam as a seafaring faith, uh, sp where the religion was spread by sophisticated cosmopolitan merchants over the longitudes and across the centuries, from the Arabian Peninsula to the Indonesian archipelago to, to Malaysia to the southern Philippines uh, to Bangladesh to southwestern Burma and to other places. And uh, if you remember the voyages of Sinbad the sailor reading when you were younger, Sinbad uh, was born in what is now Oman. He sailed out of Basra in what is now Iraq. And his voyages, based on the descriptions, took him to Borneo, to the Malay archipelago, to the Andaman Islands in the Bay of Bengal, all over Indonesia. You know, the Sinbad the sailor is sort of a Homeric myth about the spreading of the Islamic faith peacefully through merchants across the South Seas. And this Islamic faith uh, if Islamic faith um, was not spread by the sword and didn't encounter a virgin cultural environment. It overlaid indigenous Javanese culture in the case of what is today Indonesia, indigenous Malay culture in the, in the case of what is now Malaysia, and indigenous Hindu culture in India. This faith of Eastern Islam has engendered democracy in, in Indonesia, which has been stable, moderate at, for the last 12 years. The, a similar case in the Philippines in, um, in Malaysia. We have been prisoners of Cold War area studies, in addition to being prisoners of the Mercator projection. Uh, Cold War area studies emerged at the end of the World War II when the United States found itself a great global power and it, had, it needed experts for all over the world. So it apportioned the world into sections. So you had the rise of terms like the Middle East, Central Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia, East Asia, and this is how university study departments were organized, it's how think tanks became organized, it's how the State Department and the Pentagon divided and the CIA divided up the world. What I'm saying in this book is that these categories no longer hold, that we're going back to a world, to a Eurasia, that's, in, or that's a truly organic continuum where one region flows into the other, where India and South Asia wants to do natural gas pipeline deals with Iran in the Middle East, where you have um, uh, you know, tremendous trade uh, in terms of financial flows and merchandise going between China and, and the Persian Gulf. It, you know, it's a world where India 
suddenly is prospecting for coal in Mozambique in Africa and is sending warships to protect the Mozambique channel for, uh, um, for its coal deliveries. Um, it's a world where you have Indian warships in the South China Sea and Chinese warships off the coast of East Africa um, you, you know, as part of a coalition against piracy. Um, it's a world where in the future we will see pipelines and deep into Central Asia connected up to the Indian Ocean, uh, transporting uh, uh, oil and natural gas. And what, it, what is the most salient fact about the Indian Ocean? It's the only ocean that has the monsoon winds. <laughs> and the word monsoon in an American lexicon indicates a storm. You only read about monsoons in American newspapers when there's some catastrophe somewhere, some weather catastrophe. But in fact, a more accurate definition of a monsoon is that it's a wind and weather system and that it's absolutely necessary for prosperity, the agricultural cycle. Um, in India, when there's a good monsoon and there's an election soon afterwards, the government in power usually does very well. Um, you know, a, a good monsoon is a signal for a good economy, so to speak. It, you know, these nations depend on the monsoon. And what's unique about the monsoon wind system is that it's utterly predictable. Uh, the winds flow in one direction, northeast, southwest, six months a year, steadily, and then reverse themselves by 180 degrees like clockwork every six months. The arrival of the monsoon in Bangladesh, in western India, can be, can be predicted down to about a two or three day period. That's a, it, it's very mathematical. And because of its mathematical predictable nature, the monsoon winds made sailing distances easy to calculate so that sailors knew when they would arrive at a place, how long it would take them to get there, when to sail. And as a result, the Indian Ocean, unlike the Atlantic and the Pacific, did not have to wait until the age of steamships to unite it. The Indian Ocean was one cultural organic continuum since antiquity. It's why you find ancient Malay communities from Southeast Asia living in Madagascar off the coast of Africa. It's why you find ancient Yemeni communities from the Hadramut in northeastern Yemen um, living on the whole other side of the Indian Ocean in the Indonesian archipelago. Um, it's why you find Gujaratis from northwest India living everywhere in the Indian Ocean, particularly in East Africa. Um, it's an ocean that is, that is as vast as it is, stretching many thousands of miles across, is small and intimate because of the monsoon winds. Um, it's an ocean that, um, where everyone was everywhere since antiquity. When Vasco da Gama sailed around the Cape of Good Hope up the east coast of Africa to what is today Kenya, and then sailed from Kenya across the Arabian Sea to the west coast of in India at Calicut. Um, he was able to do it. Now, he didn't discover India in the process. He rediscovered the secrets of the monsoon winds that were given to him by Arab navigators um, and which had been lost throughout the Middle Ages because the Romans and the ancient Greeks knew the secrets of the monsoon winds. You find Roman coins in Bengal in northeast India. Um, uh, you know, that's how far the Romans had, you know, and the Romans had gotten. And the Portuguese basically rediscovered this. The Portuguese were not the first Westerners in the Indian Ocean, but they were the first Western power to do something comprehensive with it. Um, within a few years, at, at the end of the 15th century and the early 16th century, the Portuguese um, developed uh, trading networks and ports all over the Indian Ocean, beginning a 500-year cycle of Western dominance. The Portuguese were supplanted by the Dutch, by the French in southern India, by the British, of course, and at the end of World War II, by the U.S. Navy. And now we are entering a period, I believe, 
which is going to very much resemble the pre-Portuguese era. Um, before Vasco da Gama, you had a united trading system from the Horn of Africa all the way up to near the Sea of Japan, the navigable rimland of Eurasia. It's why you had Arab and Persian mosques in, in the, on the east coast of China. It's why you had Chinese maritime navigators in Yemen um, in the, uh, in, um, you know, 600 years ago. And this trading system is coming back courtesy of the rise of China, the rise of India, and incredible wealth accumulation among the Arabs in the Persian Gulf. And it's a world, and, you know, and, and it's a world that is essentially going to be a non-Western system without, it, without a, a superpower to dominate it. Because, because what's happening is that well, here's the story of the U.S. Navy. Let me tell it this way. The U.S. Navy during Ronald Reagan's presidency numbered about 580 warships. During Bill Clinton's era, it numbered about 350. Right now, there are 286 warships in the U.S. fleet. And if you believe the Congressional Budget Office and others who study this very closely, we're likely to go down to a 250-ship Navy. Um, and meanwhile, the Chinese Navy is growing by leaps and bounds. The Indian Navy is about to become the third largest in the world. The U.S. Navy will still dominate, but the relative distance between the U.S. Navy and other world navies is going to get smaller and smaller. Why am I concentrating so much on navies and oceans? Because in an age of globalization, Despite the jet and information age, 90% of all commercial goods travel by sea because it's cheaper. Um, the reason globalization can happen is because the sea lines of communication are made safe by the dominance of the U.S. Navy. Um, piracy is still more of a nuisance than a strategic threat, though it garners a lot of headlines. And, and when we go into a more multipolar military era, where the U.S. Navy will be comparatively smaller, the other navies comparatively bigger, you know, the protection of the sea lines of communication, that's something that we take for granted, we don't even think about, um, could be called into question. In other words, we're going back to a real classical supra-region. Um, and, and that supra-region, includes the Indian Ocean and the Western Pacific. Because after all, you have feasibility studies for a canal that's going to be dug across the Isthmus of Kra in, in southern Thailand, for a land bridges across the, 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 Malay, um, the Malaysian Peninsula. Um, Dubai Ports World is, is studying a land bridge project there. Um, so it won't, right now, uh, we're prisoners of geography in the sense that all the merchant ships and oil tankers, and they number in the hundreds of thousands of fleet of voyages per year, sail only through the narrow and, um, and shoal-infested Strait of Malacca, uh, which is just a few miles across. And the Indian Ocean is emerging as the world's energy interstate. Um, because most of the, hydro, the hydrocarbons, the oil and natural gas, is in the Iranian plateau and in the Arabian Peninsula. And increasingly, most of the consumers are in the, what I call the burgeoning middle-class flesh pots of East Asia, the cities of China, South Korea, Japan. And the energy goes from one end of the Indian Ocean through the Strait of Malacca to the other end. Now, the Chinese are not happy with this arrangement. Hu Jintao, the, you know, the Chinese leader, has spoken about China's Malacca dilemma. Um, in other words, China, our foreign policy, American foreign policy, whether it's Republicans or Democrats in power, it doesn't matter, is driven overall by one item which is to spread democracy in, in a Western-style civil society. Um, 
But, and this is a very missionary approach to foreign policy. The Chinese don't share this approach. Uh, and, and they're not like us, and they're not like the former Soviet Union, which tried to spread communism. The Chinese are not motivated by an idea. They're motivated by something else. They're motivated by the acquisition of oil, natural gas, strategic minerals, and strategic metals. Um, which they need in vast amounts in order to propel the development of a middle-class society for a, a one-fifth of humanity. Um, you know, in other words, they need to dramatically raise the living standard of a fifth of humanity, and that requires stores of natural resources. Uh, so the Chinese are doing a lot of things. They're building pipelines across Central Asia to take uh, Kazakh oil from the Caspian Sea across the vast immensity of Kazakhstan into Western China. They've, they're building a pipeline taking Turk Turkmen natural gas from western Turkmenistan across Uzbekistan into Kazakhstan and into western China. Um, uh, in other words, they're, they're looking for ways that they can avoid the Strait of Malacca. The Chinese, think of China moving vertically southward to the Indian Ocean and India uh, moving horizontally east and west along the Indian Ocean. The Chinese are building massive deep water port projects in Gwadar in Pakistan, in Chittagong in Bangladesh, in Kayuk Fru in Burma, in Hamban Tota on the southern uh, tip of Sri Lanka, um, and they're also giving significant military and economic aid to all of these countries. Uh, why are they doing this? Because they want military bases? I don't believe that. First of all, military bases would, uh, the, if there were military bases in these places that I've just listed, it would surround India, and that would be too provocative to India. And China is at pains to convince people that its rise is benevolent and non-hegemonic. Um, the Chinese are building the equivalent of 21st century coaling stations across the width of the Indian Ocean so that one day their fleets can protect the sea lines of communication where the hydrocarbons are going. Uh, China wants warehouses in these ports where it can store consumer goods for sale in, in Africa and the Middle East. It wants visitation rights for its warships, um, but it won't go so far as to build actual um, actual um, bases. Um, and, and at these points, like Gwadar in Pakistan and Kayuk Fru in Burma, the Chinese want to build pipelines and roads that will connect these Indian Ocean port cities with Central Asia, with Southern China, so that, again, more access routes that avoid the Strait of Malacca. Meanwhile, India feels, India feels surrounded. Uh, by China. Um, in, in India now, there's, there's more and more respect and consideration given to an, uh, to an old British Viceroy of India, Lord George Nathaniel Curzon. Curzon was the Viceroy of India from 1899 to 1905. And Curzon at, you know, even though he was a British colonialist, looked out with a strategic vision from the same geographical perspective as today's Indian prime ministers and elite uh, do. Um, Curzon's India was a greater India. It included Pakistan, Burma, Bangladesh. Um, it was an India that required shadow zones of influence in Arabia, in Iran, in Central Asia, and in Southeast Asia, right up through the Burmese jungles to the Gulf of Siam. And this is how Indian elites see it now. They, you know, they want to recreate a kind of strategic vision of India that will go along with India's burgeoning economic wealth. Um, it's not an imperialist vision, because what they seek is just open trade and pipeline and road routes that would bring Iranian natural gas to India, um, that would 
bring uh, natural gas from the Burmese coast across Bangladesh into India, where, uh, where borders would be open. And with an open border system, India, precisely because of its immensity of population, would become the natural dominant power and would be able to check China in China's move southward. Uh, the Indian-Chinese rivalry is what is going to be the organizing principle for Eurasia in a post-Iraq, post-Afghanistan world. Um, and it's a world where, actually, the Obama administration is alert to this. Um, uh, the day after election day, President Obama is going to visit India, Indonesia, South Korea and Japan, and maybe Australia. In other words, the rimland of Eurasia. Um, and and, and in what unites each of these places is the challenge, the challenge posed by a rising China. Um, uh, you know, India feels surrounded. Indonesia has two submarines that barely work. China has several dozen submarines. I Indonesia's largest trading partner is China, um, but India cannot protect its vast and far-flung archipelago from the Chinese Navy. So India, the largest Muslim, Indonesia, the largest Muslim country in the world, requires the presence of the U.S. Navy in the region as a balance against China. Um, Japan and South Korea recently have become increasingly stressed um, by China's claims on islands in the, south, in, the, in the Sea of Japan and by China's support of North Korea even after the torpedoing of its South Korean warship. So we're seeing a new strategic world emerge that the U.S. has been slow to come to grips with because of the distraction of two messy um, land wars. Um, let me... Um, let me um, close up this talk by going into Sri Lanka and, and Taiwan to talk a bit about them. Americans normally don't consider Sri Lanka very important. Uh, you know, Sri Lanka, its former name was, um, was uh, Ceylon, which is a beautiful mispronunciation of a Portuguese word. Um, it's just a lovely word. It's too bad it's not used anymore. And uh, Sri Lanka is very strategically n located for this new world I am describing. It's, you know, it, it's, it's very close by the main sea lines of communication between the Indian Ocean and the Western Pacific. 30,000 merchant ships pass per year just south of the Sri Lankan coast. Um, and China is building a vast port complex at the southern tip of Sri Lanka at Hambantota that I visited. In fact, I got arrested there because I had, um, I, had, I, had, I had trespassed onto the construction site in order to get a sense of it and an appreciation of it. And I wound up spending a night in jail in Sri Lanka and, and wound up getting free because of, a because of a polite phone call made by the defense attache from the U.S. government, uh, from the U.S. Embassy in Colombo. Anyway, China's, um, China's building this big port project. And as you may know, Sri Lanka suffered a 25-year-long civil war that ended in, the, in May 2009 between the Sinhalese Buddhists and the uh, Hindu Tamils. Um, and this real story that was never really... Um, it was never really... Uh, it didn't really come to the fore in, in our newspaper accounts, was that China won the Civil War. Um, China supplied the Sri Lankan government with everything from assault rifles to fighter jets. It supplied it with money, with diplomatic support. This was after the United States and European nations and Canada had pulled out of Sri Lanka because of the human rights abuses by the government. Um, China filled the vacuum. You know, it's, it built the port, um, it provided all sorts of aid and military logistics advice, and the Sri Lankan government was able to win the war in a very decisive way. Um, but China, as I said, will not have a mili full-fledged military base presence in Sri Lanka because that would be too provocative to India. 
and, uh, and China cannot afford to, you know, to give, be too provocative with India because this is a very subtle, complex world we're entering where China and India compete for ports and access routes. At the same time, they maintain one of the world's largest complementary trading relationships. Um, and and yet another way that this world is very subtle is moving to the South China Sea to Taiwan. Um, for a generation of Americans, Vietnam is more than a word, it's more than a war, it's a, it's a whole, it, it connotates a whole era in American history, a very difficult era. Um, but for the Vietnamese, the Vietnam War was just one depredation against their territory by a foreign invader. Vietnam fought a full-fledged war with China several years after the United States pulled out of Vietnam. Um, and right now, guess who's emerging as America's newest and best military ally in the Eastern uh, East Asia, Vietnam. Uh, uh, Vietnam fears China. Um, Vietnam has claims against China in the South China Sea. Um, Vietnam desperately needs the presence of the U.S. Navy and Air Force. Um, in recent weeks alone, the USS George Washington, a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, visited v uh, Vietnam. The USS John McCain, uh, um, uh, a destroyer, a guided missile destroyer, visited Vietnam. Hillary Clinton has been there several times over the past two years. She's going back yet again. Um, the Vietnamese can easily enter into an, a military arrangement with us because, after all, they defeated us in a war. Therefore, they have no axes to grind, no chips on their shoulder, no face to lose among their neighbors, and, and, and so that they can easily enter into an alliance with us without having to apologize to anyone, because they're doing it from the stronger psychological position. And that's what makes Vietnam a natural military ally of the United States in the, in, you know, in the first decades of the 21st century. But just as China would not go so far as to have a base in Sri Lanka, we would never go so far as to have a permanent military base at Cameron Bay in Vietnam because that would be too provocative to China. And America has to take close care to its relationship with China for all kinds of reasons that we all know about and read about. So our ships will continue to have strong, constant visitation rights at Vietnamese ports like Cameron Bay. Um, and we will have all kinds of military exercises with the Vietnamese, but we will not go so far as to establish a base there. Um, and the South China Sea, which is part of what I call in the book the part of the greater Indian Ocean, is really emerging as sort of a cockpit of the world. It's the entry point to the Indian Ocean. It's where you know, more and more commercial goods traffic. It's where you know, a, a, a large number of, of the oil and natural gas coming from the Arabian Peninsula passes on its way to Northeast China, South Korea, and Japan. And Vietnam will be our closest ally in the region. Now, let me end up by saying a few words about Taiwan. Um, there are 270 flights a week, commercial flights a week, between, the, between Taiwan and the Chinese mainland. Um, at the same time, there are about 1,500 ballistic missiles on the Chinese mainland f targeting Taiwan. Um, t t what is going on is the peaceful, backed up by military pressure, envelopment of Taiwan by mainland China. There was a RAND study done in the summer of 2009 that showed that by the year 2020, the United States military, even with F-22s, even with bases in Japan, might not be able to credibly defend um, at Taiwan from a Chinese attack. Now, there won't be a Chinese attack, I don't believe, because um, it won't be necessary. What will happen is at some point, it will just become, it will become assumed that 
the, you know, that, that the U.S. cannot credibly defend Taiwan, that Taiwan will become part of a greater China, you know, Chinese sphere. And when that happens, the, the, the Chinese strategists will be able to focus on larger issues, on, 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 on denying the U.S. Navy access to the first, you know, to the East China Sea, the South China Sea, making it harder and harder for our warships to go wherever we want, whenever they want, to kind of expand out to the first island chain and also to expand into the Indian Ocean. It will be equivalent to the, how the United States built the Panama Canal, became a great ocean-faring power, and a great world power after the United States had consolidated the western frontier in 1890. It's no coincidence that the Panama Canal was built shortly after the consolidation of the western frontier. Now, let me end up just by saying that um, there's nothing illegitimate about China's naval and military rise. Um, China is not threatening to destroy any country. It's not like clerical Iran. Um, the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the outbreak of World War I, saw its economy grow by about 10% um, per year, with the exception of a small depression in the early 1890s. And as our economy grew, and we developed trading relationships with countries around the world, our Navy and Marine Corps grew and, and, and moved further and further afield. The same, China is following in our footsteps. You know, we're seeing the legitimate gradual rise of another great power and, 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 and the legitimate nat gradual rise of another yet another great power, India, will balance against China. And therefore, the most responsible thing we can do as a nation is to leverage like-minded democratic others like India, Indonesia, uh, Japan, South Korea, Australia, the very countries that President Obama is going to, um, to leverage these like-minded democratic others to preserve the balance of power in Eurasia as we enter this multipolar uh, world. Thank you very much for your time. I've been reading your books for uh, many years, and I want to thank you for your excellent analyses. Uh, but one aspect of the Indian Ocean that you have not covered this evening, yeah. and I hope that you do, is, uh, and you've covered this excellently in your writings, is Pakistan. Yes. Yeah. All right, and Pakistan presents us with the specter of a failed state with thermonuclear weapons. And so everything that you've said so far makes sense as long as Pakistan does not fail. Yeah. To use a counterfactual, what happens to your scenario if Pakistan fails? Yes. Well, in fact, I deal with that in a chapter in the book. And I, use, I wrap this whole question that you've just raised around a profile of the Pakistani port of Gwadar, which the Chinese are building. And Gwadar, if you visit it, in southwestern Pakistan, in the region known as Baluchistan, near the entrance to the Persian Gulf, very strategically located, is a charming, beautiful, exquisite 19th century fishing village uh, with this spanking new Chinese built port that hasn't started operations yet. And the airport at Gwadar is so small, you, there's not even a conveyor belt for luggage. Um, yet there are all these plans to build a luxury apartment complexes, uh, warehouse, port warehousing, to turn Gwadar into the next Dubai or Abu Dhabi or someplace like that. And all this depends, though, on the success of Pakistan as a state. Were Pakistan to fail, uh, Gwadar would remain a very exquisite, beautiful to visit 19th century fishing village where very little is going on. And um, pa Pakistan to succeed, it needs to decentralize. Right now, Pakistan is a state controlled by an army a Punjabi army that dominates the ethnic Sindhis in the southeast, the ethnic Baluchis in the southwest, uh, the ethnic Pashtuns in what used to be called the Northwest Frontier Province. And um, 
Pac that's the only way that Pakistan can survive is through, you know, is through gradual decentralization. What, but we're pa I don't believe that Pakistan will fail as a state. It's actually cut the poverty rate by a third over the last 10 years. There's a nascent middle class, a nascent civil society growing. But if it were to fail, uh, as a state, the whole western half of the Indian Ocean would be destabilized. Um, uh, Gujarat, in, you know, the growth, the incredible economic growth in Gujarat would be endangered. Um, suddenly, um, Iran would feel, would fit, would feel the pressure. Um, India is actually moving closer to Iran in, uh, to leverage against Pakistan. India is building roads and building roads from southwestern Afghanistan into eastern Iran so that Afghanistan will be less dependent on Pakistan and more dependent on Iran. Um, a failed Pakistan um, basically means an, an, a whole arc of instability throughout the western half of the Indian Ocean. Indonesia, in Southeast Asia, among ASEAN countries, they seem to be the least enthusiastic about U.S. involvement. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on why. And the second one is about the publishing industry. Um, Burma, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, these like Southeast, South and Southeast Asian nations are becoming increasingly important, but there seems to be very little appetite for news about them. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that and yes. how you've been able um, to cover them. Indonesian officials tell a different story behind closed doors than they say in public. Um, because Indonesia is the world's largest Islamic state. It's not officially an Islamic state, but in terms of the number of Muslims, it's officially more of a secular state. Um, but because it has you know, 200 million Muslims, it can't be seen to be moving too close to the United States for fear of alienated Muslims for fear of alienating Muslims throughout the Middle East. At the same time, it feels pressure from China, and so requires the, uh, you know, the presence of the U.S. Navy at least to continue, uh, if not get bigger. So Indonesian officials will, you know, will not enter into any official alliance with the United States. They'll be very cool to the United States publicly, but privately they will say, we need the presence of your military um, around. Um, in terms of publishing, it's become, as a journalist, I can tell you it becomes harder and harder to survive doing serious journalism. Um, you know, it's not just Burma, Sri Lanka, and other countries of, of South and Southeast Asia that go undercovered. Um, it's many other, it's South America, it's many other places besides. Though I have to confess that the news pages of the Wall Street Journal, not the editorial pages, the news pages, cover Asia much better than the news pages of the New York Times. Maybe it's because Murdoch's an Australian. I, I, I don't know. It may actually be a factor. But it, to read daily news about Asia, the news section of the Wall Street Journal is very good. I mean, they broke the story about how the U.S. is going to give Vietnam nuclear technology now. In reference to China having the Blue Sea Navy, you didn't mention here, that I know one of the things they covered most is getting an aircraft carrier since there are so few in the world. And they were thinking of buying one, I think it was from France, at one time they are buying a used one. I was having breakfast with the Chinese ambassador to Washington about a year ago, and there were a number of other people at the breakfast. And the ambassador said, you know, you shouldn't be afraid of us because it's not like we're building an aircraft carrier or two. And, the, and another person at the table who followed navies like a science said, Mr. Ambassador, with all due respect, I wish you were building an aircraft carrier or two rather than what you are building and, you know, are, are acquiring. And what they are acquiring is submarines. Um, aircraft carriers have multiple uses. They could be used in humanitarian interventions as we saw in the Indonesian tsunami because they can pump hundreds of millions of gallons of fresh water on shore. They can serve as an offshore platform to ferry troops on the ground to help out in relief. They can project power in a peaceful way. They can do a lot of things, whereas submarines are totally war-fighting instruments. Um, the Chinese, in fact, now probably will acquire a carrier or two. Um, 
I think they were embarrassed by their inability to help out much during the Indonesian tsunami. Uh, they learned firsthand that projecting soft power through your military leads to hard power advantages because it led for the U.S. military to, to reestablish relations with the Indonesian military for the first time in, you know, in about 15 years. So China will acquire a carrier to, it's a prestige item, it's about time they have one, but the key thing to watch in China is how many and what kind of subs they have their ballistic missiles and their, and their development of missiles able to hit moving targets at sea. That is an American uh, carrier strike group. Not that they would ever hit one, but the very possession of such missiles would affect our own deployments and where we choose to go and when. Hi, my name is Robert Von Bargen, and we're concerned in this country about the impression that we leave with the Islamic world because of the Islamophobia in this country. What kind of Islamic problems does China have? We already know what India has, of course, because of, of Pakistan. But how does that affect them? I know with the Uyghurs and some other parts of yes. China, they um, have their own population problems. Yeah, Chi China's western frontier area called Xinjiang, meaning in Chinese, <laughs> new province, is about 50% populated by ethnic Turkic Uyghur Muslims who still use the old Arabic script. It's one of the, the last places in the world where the Turkic language is used in an Arabic script. Um, and this area used to be fully Muslim until the Chinese started sending droves of Han Chinese, ethnic Han Chinese immigrants there. Um, it, the Western China only really became part of China in the modern era during the, uh, the 18th century under the, the Manchu Qing dynasty. Um, so it's a very fraught area. Um, relations between Uyghur Turks and Han Chinese is extremely bad. Um, you know, there's an extreme levels of distrust. And there are, you know, as we saw in 2009, there were demonstrations against, you know, against Chinese rule. Um, China cannot afford to lose this area, to see it have autonomy of any kind, just as the way it can't afford to have autonomy of any kind in Tibet, because these areas are rich in natural resources, um, and China is busy building roads, and rail lines everywhere into Western China, into Tibet, um, to consolidate this area. And one of the ways that it's consolidating these Muslim-populated uh, regions is by especially promoting good relations with the former Soviet Central Asian republics further west, building roads and pipelines through Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, so that, the, so that the, you know, these ethnic Turkic Uyghurs will not have any rear base to use um, you know, in terms of fighting China, the way that the Pashtuns have a rear base in Pakistan. Jeff Warner, LA Jews for Peace. I have two questions. The easy one is if you could spe speak a little bit more about the canal through Thailand and the land bridge. Yeah. But the, but the other question is, is Iran. I mean, Iran is, is becoming a regional power, and it's on the western side of this ocean you just spoke about. And, uh, you know, U.S. policy ain't going to stop Iran from becoming a regional power. So how does this play in to the China-India yeah. conflict. Uh, the canal across the Isthmus of Kra in southern Thailand would cost about $20 billion. Um, it would be an engineering marvel on the same scale as the Panama Canal. Um, it's, it's not a, something to be taken lightly. Um, it's just given the sea traffic, which is expected to rise significantly, because here's a figure I'll throw out at you. Um, the world energy consumption is going to grow by 45% between now and 2030. Half of that is going to come from India and China. Uh, so, you know, so, so there are going to be more and more ships, tanker traffic, between, uh, the, between the Middle East and China through the Strait of Malacca, so that, you will, you know, so that it, it seems likely that at some point there will, build, there will be 
uh, one or two of these projects uh, connecting the Bay of Bengal and the South China Sea uh, come to fruition. In terms of Iran, Iran fronts not just the oil-rich Persian Gulf, but the oil-rich Caspian Sea. It is both a Middle Eastern country and a Central Asian country because uh, the Zagros, once you come down the eastern, the northeastern slopes of the Zagros Mountains, there's just a flat plain between you and Central Asia, between Iran and Turkmenistan. Uh, whereas on the western front of the Zagros Mountains, there's a flat plain between Iran and Mesopotamia and Iraq. Um, the Iranians are busy building roads and railways into Turkmenistan, into Uzbekistan, uh, to uh, tying themselves to, you know, to Central Asia as much as they're you know, expanding their influence into the Middle East. Um, China and India are increasingly um, uh, you know, rivals and, um, and, and, are, you know, and covet Iran's oil and natural gas. Um, so that um, if you look at a map of the Tang Dynasty in the 8th century, you'll see the Chinese Silk Road influence extended up to Khorasan in northeastern Iran and included, you know, Afghanistan and Uzbekistan. So that, um, you know, Iran's geopolitical importance can't be overstated. It's just blessedly located. Um, and, you know, and will be a great factor. Um, I think the only you know, ultimate solution is to get a regime shift or a regime change in Iran gradually over time. And I want to come back to the United States. So I get the impression from your talk that um, our defense role is going to be diminishing over time as far as the world affairs are concerned. Is that because we have essentially work to starve our defense department over the years by, you know, I can talk on and on about the incremental tax rates and stuff like that, that we really can't um, compete on the world in the defense department anymore? Naval and air platforms are immensely costly. A new destroy, I, I mean, the new Ford-class aircraft carrier is $12 billion a piece, and that's before you put the planes on it. Um, a destroyer or a, a nuclear a Los Angeles-class attack sub is about $3 billion, $4 billion a piece. Um, you have fighter jets that go into the hundreds of millions a piece, the F-22. Um, the F-35 will be somewhat more cost-effective, but it, it's still going to be extremely costly. So because of the cost of these items, Navies and air forces are normally effective metaphors for the health of an economy over the long run. So if an economy remains wobbly and at low growth rates for, for a number of years running, there's going to be political pressure to check the building of ships, of warships, um, and fighter jets. If an economy is growing by 10% a year and has been for decades like China's, you're going to see an increase in the number of warships and fighter jets and, and other equipment. Um, so over time, the distance between the country whose economy is growing by 1%, 2%, and that growing at 10% is going to close. Um, so, um, you know, what kind of Navy we'll have in 15, 20 years? What kind of Air Force? That depends very much on how our economy does pulling out of this great recession. Hello, Mr. Kaplan. Uh, my name is uh, Lieutenant Commander Rick Arthur, and uh, I spent a lot of time over at Pacific Fleet uh, at the Plans and Policy Office, and I've been a longtime admirer of your work, um, and, and your work is talked about often there. Um, but I wanted to ask you about uh, the uh, peaceful rise theory of China, which is basically, as you know, our, our accepted uh, wisdom over there. Although we can't help feeling uh, doubtful a lot when you look across the way at the, uh, you know, at the uh, incremental rise of China. And what, what is to prevent, what is different about China uh, compared to every other <clears throat> great power as they've risen to great power status 
there's, I, 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 I can't think of anyone that has not had a war, and I don't know exactly how it would happen, Yeah. but what's different? The job of, of defense planners is not to look at motives, but at capabilities. In other words, if a country is building a lot of nuclear-powered submarines, you don't ask yourselves, well, does China have a motive to ever go to war with us? You just say motives can change over the course of years. Political crises can erupt that shift motives in a particular country. We have to just deal with the capabilities. So if they do this, we have to do that to compensate. You know, that's the only responsible approach um, for defense planners. What's different about China? Well, I would say that um, never before has a rising great power been forced to be entangled in so many global, global organizations, whether it's the World Trade Organization or something else. Um, you know, China is emerging into a global system, and that, you know, and that hopefully will constrain it. On the other hand, um, we, you know, a former, the former uh, uh, trade administrator, Robert Zellick, coined the phrase a responsible stakeholder, that we want China to be a responsible stakeholder in the global community. Um, but it's unclear that the Chinese want to be a responsible stakeholder in the way that we portray it. You know, we want that, you know, if we're protecting Chinese copper miners in Afghanistan, we would like the Chinese to help us more in Afghanistan. Uh, we would like the Chinese to help us more on the human rights field. And, uh, uh, but China's policy seems to be that's not in our self-interest. Uh, let the Americans tie themselves down with all these global responsibilities, and we'll just quietly become a great power. It costs us less to become a great power, much less than it costs America just to maintain its far-flung global responsibilities. Um, so that, you know, you're right, it's an open question, and the, and the defense planners have to be professional pessimists, because that's their job. Um, you know, they have, you know, diplomats are the inveritable, uh, you know, the inveterate optimists, um, but defense planners have to think pessimistically as if, you know, something could happen. We've all seen the statistics, how the U.S. spends more than all other countries in the world combined. And I was wondering what your views were in terms of whether we need to maintain such a large military budget in order to keep U.S. power and influence in the world. Or is there a way to reduce it in any significant way and maybe redistribute it and still maintain that power and influence? Well, Secretary Gates clearly thinks there's a way to save money. Um, you know, he's been pounding his fist at, um, you, know, at, you know, at this terrible procurement system we have where with cost overruns, you know, uh, this company or that says, well, your destroyer is going to cost $5 billion now. You know, it was originally projected for $2 billion. I don't blame the taxpayers for saying we're not going to stand for that, for asking serious questions. Um, in, uh, you know about that. So I'm sure there are there are legitimate reasons, you know, to keep the defense budget from getting larger and larger. You know, to trim it, um, and 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 actually, even if we were to go down to a 250 ship navy, we could still acquit ourselves of our global responsibilities. Um, but it's a matter of how small you want to go and, and, how, to, and, and how, to, um, how to stabilize defense spending um, uh, in a smart way. Because defense planners, just like they have to be professional pessimists, also don't have the luxury of planning for one future. They have to plan for several. They have to say, well, we may have another counterinsurgency war like Iraq, or maybe we'll never have a counterinsurgency war again because we'll never get into that position again. We'll be smarter the next time. Maybe the future challenges will be conventionally maritime or, or air. Um, they can't make those decisions. They have to leverage. They have to say, we need... You know, we need, we may even have a, a conventional land operation in, nor, in the northern half of the Korean Peninsula where North Korea to suddenly collapse. Um, so they have to be able to continue to do everything. 
uh, while doing it in a more cost-effective manner. But it's certainly right for Congress to ask probing questions about, you know, about the builders, these defense companies that build these aircraft, you know, these air platforms, these sea platforms, about if, you know, getting more and more efficiencies out of them. You mentioned the trips by President Obama and Secretary Clinton to, to Asia, and Prime Minister Singh also has an interesting itinerary this week, which has China as its theme. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you see the China-India rivalry playing out. Both nations are beside themselves in trying to stabilize it. Um, you know, neither nation wants to go to war with the, with the other ever. Uh, they fought a war in 1962. It was a primarily small-scale land war in the, you know, in the Himalayan foothills. Uh, it wasn't an air or a sea campaign. They, have, they will have, at some point in the future, the world's biggest complementary trading relationship. Um, but at the same time, they're rivals. And why are they rivals? Because after all, China and India don't have a difficult history behind them. It's not like India and Pakistan, where Pakistan represents is the living summation of all the, of all the Islamic invasions into northern India during the medieval centuries. China and India had very little to do with each other throughout history because of the Great Wall of the Himalayas separating them. Buddhism spread from India into China, but, you know, it, but it was basically a very Pacific relationship. So what's happened? What's happened is the shrinkage of distance caused by the growth of, you know, the advance of military technology. Now you have uh, ch uh, Chinese airfields in Tibet with fighter jets whose arc of operations include India. Um, you have Indian warships um, in the South China Sea. You have uh, Chinese warships in the Indian Ocean. Um, you have overlapping ranges of operations of, you know, of, of, of warships and of and of airplanes. So that it's the shrinkage of distance caused by this um, caused by this enveloping military technology that's brought China and India to be more and more uncomfortable neighbors. Thank you.